Our Father, we do acknowledge that it is marvelous that we can sing those words, that we can sing any words that bear testimony to our safety in Christ, our safety from your wrath against our guilt because it was born by him who stood in our, in our place at the cross. It was born by the perfect and sinless Son of God, the Holy Lamb of God. In Christ, what we have been freed from, you endured for us so that we could have everything that you purchased by your own perfections, by your own obedience, for your own glory that we get to participate in by grace. And so we acknowledge you as supreme, as the center of our affections. We acknowledge as well our stumbling in living that out and living in light of the grace that we have, but you are a perfect Savior, and we can know that though we are weak, you are strong. Though our heart and our flesh may fail, you are the strength of our heart, and though we know that in ourselves we could never hold on to Christ, that if it is true that we have received your grace, you hold on to us eternally, and you and you alone are able to make us stand in the presence of your glory with great joy, and how we long for that day. As we prepare our hearts to come to your table, teach us from your word, in your name, Lord Jesus, amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, this morning, we're going to pick up where we uh, left off a couple of weeks ago, namely on the topic of giving, new covenant giving. We looked very briefly at the, uh, the reality of tithing in the Old Testament. Uh, that can be a little bit confusing, I understand, but uh, nonetheless, we wanted to at least give a backdrop uh, to how uh, giving was understood among the people of God uh, before the coming of Christ, what we often refer to as a tithe, and indeed that's what it was. It simply means a tenth. Uh, the concept, by way of reminder, of a tithe uh, of 10% predates the Mosaic Law, but it was in the Mosaic Law that the, the command to give 10% of proceeds, both from livestock and from those from agriculture, were commanded by God at Sinai. The tithe reflected among the nation of God's people in the Old Covenant that they had their identity, their full identity as being the people of God, that they were a covenant people of God. And therefore, the tithes that the people were to give supported them in their religious endeavor. It supported the tabernacle, later the temple, the priesthood, the Levites, and all that went along with maintaining the worship of God's people. Eventually, the tithe also went to support the monarchy, which we looked at. And the tithe then exceeded far more than just the 10% that we sometimes associate with a tithe. And then again, that is the meaning of the word. But there was 10% that was uh, prescribed as just a regular part of the giving of the worship of God's people under the monarchy. There was another 10%. There were also other festival days and there were the normal sacrifices that the people were to give. So in total, as we remember, in the Old Covenant, it's estimated, and it's hard to be exact on certain things, but it's estimated that between 30 or 40 to 60 60% of the people's wealth, of their income, of their livelihood was given as a tithe through the prescribed 10% for the, uh, the support of the tabernacle, for the monarchy, and then other gifts and sacrifices and festival, day, festival days and so forth. And then in addition to that, the people were also uh, allowed to give what was known as a free will offering, and that was merely an offering that they gave over and above as an expression of their worship of God. 
And so the tithing, as we think of tithing, uh, as Christians often refer to the tithe, it's, it's limited to 10%, but that clearly is not the way that it was understood even in the Old Testament when you look at the totality of what God required. But the point here is simply to say, as we consider the topic of giving in the new covenant, is that the tithe is not commanded. And that's, there's a lot of discussion that Christians have among one another on this. But the tithe is not commanded in the New Testament. It is not commanded. It is not uh, required. It is not binding on the New Testament believer. We as New Covenant believers are not required or called by God to give a tithe as it was understood under the Old Covenant. However, that is no excuse not to give, nor does it in any way diminish the attitude of the Christian towards giving. In fact, it actually expands it. It actually expands it. No longer is the concept of giving, even though, they, again, there were free will offerings and the expressions of worship in the Old Testament, but at its essence, in terms of what God expects from his people, no longer is it something that can be limited, even in any way, to the 10% or the 30 to 40%, but it is a call of God to express through our giving a reflection of his grace to us in Christ. In other words, the measure of giving for the new covenant is the cross and not Mount Sinai, if you want to think of it in that way. It is the cross. It is the measure of God's gift to us in Christ. So we're going to consider this reality of New Testament giving uh, in what I think is one of the most, well, it is one of the most extended discussions of this in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians verses eight, uh, chapters 8 through 9. Now, uh, it's 11.30, and we have communion today. My goal was to get through both chapters, which is 37 verses uh, today. And I'm actually going to attempt to do that uh, and edit as we go along. But it may turn into two, two messages. But let's, let's consider this. And, I, and again, obviously, we're not going to go into detail. This isn't a full exposition of the passage. It is merely to look at Paul's instructions to the Corinthian church and gain out principles and motivations uh, for us as believers and how we are to think about and actually practice giving uh, under the new covenant of Christ. And so again, we'll look at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 through 9. And we're going to look simply at this, the example, the exhortation, and the end of New Testament giving. The example, the exhortation, or exhortations, a warning within that, and then the end of New Testament giving. Now, before we begin, let me just note very, very broadly the context of chapters 8 through 9 in 2 Corinthians. Paul is, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. This is his second canonical letter. Here, there were other letters written to them. This is the second one that's in Scripture, in which he writes to them in these chapters to prepare them for the collection of a gift that they had promised for the relief of the poor in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is often referred to as the mother church. It is where the church began there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and there were many Jews who were suffering in large part because of their faith and the, the troubles that that brought on within their culture and exclusion and so forth. They were suffering material needs. And so there was a collection that was uh, intended and begun that the Corinthians were a part of to alleviate some of this need of the Jews in uh, Jerusalem. And so Paul is writing them, as you'll see as we go through, to prepare them for his coming to receive a pledge that they had previously made uh, as a participation in the relief of poor Christians, poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Now, obviously, we're not going to just, re we're going to read the passage, but we're going to do that as we go along as we consider these different points. So with that in mind, let me, well, let me give you just one 
one other uh, background to this before we begin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he mentions this. Uh, He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. Okay, so that's the background. So now Paul has gone through Macedonia, as we'll see at the beginning, and he is preparing to come to the church at Corinth to receive this tithe. So let's look first then at the example of the Macedonians, and this is in verses 1 through 5, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So Paul begins his preparation to come to the Corinthians with the example of the Macedonians. And note first that he gives this at the beginning to give an encouragement to the Corinthians. He's wanting to hold up this example of the Macedonians to encourage the Corinthians to say, and you demonstrate that like faith which I know is in you. As a matter of fact, he mentions over in verse 7, or excuse me, verse 8, Uh, that he's writing as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. In other words, that you have a like love, you have a like sincerity, now follow through. And so he gives this as an encouragement to the Corinthians, and we can understand that. We are encouraged by the example of others. We see that throughout Scripture. We're encouraged when Paul was emboldened to be faithful in prison to the Philippians. He says, well, because of my faithfulness, other brethren are, have courage to preach the gospel amid affliction. We have the example of Hebrews 11, which by faith we are to mirror and to model those who have gone before us and who have trusted in him whom they could not see and they were faithful to the end. We see Christ who endured the cross that we might not grow weary and lose heart. And here he uses that same idea of example. He uses this idea of example and says, look at the faithfulness of others and follow through. You share that like faith, now demonstrate that like faith in your similar commitment, in this case, to give generously. And in holding up this example, then, he establishes at least four key principles. Four key principles. And again, I'm only going to mention these uh, briefly. Uh, But here are some to consider through this example of the Macedonians. They were an example to the Corinthians. They're an example to us. And these principles are principles that are rooted really in the reality of the old covenant in principle in many ways. uh, But definitely within the light of the coming of Christ. And they are principles then that should shape the way that we think about giving. Note first in verse 1. New Testament giving or giving under the new covenant is a fruit of grace. It's a fruit of grace. He says there at the beginning of chapter 8 verse 1, brethren we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. The grace of God which has been given 
uh, to the churches in Macedonia that has been given. It is a grace they received. That is the very idea of grace. It is a grace that begins and originates with God and is now being fleshed out through this overflowing generosity of the Macedonian church. And so the idea of giving and the overflow of generosity among God's people has its origin, has its source, as it were, in the grace of God, in the grace of God. It is a work of grace that Paul is commending here, the work of God's grace in the Macedonian church. And this really stands behind and is the the prime factor between all of our giving as a church. And I want you to just notice, and it's it's central to Paul's whole expression of gratitude and all of his exhortations uh, to them and to us. As a matter of fact, interestingly, the word here for grace is used 10 times, 10 times he uses this term just in these short chapters. He, He uses it in different ways, and it's not always translated grace, but it is the idea that runs throughout all of his instructions here, all of the example. That it is by the grace of God. In chapter 4, in verse 4, he, it's translated in this way, the favor of participation. It's the same root term here. The, the grace of participation, the favor of participation. Several times he refers to it as the gracious work that they are doing. In verse 16 or 9, he refers to the grace of our Lord Jesus. It's translated as thanks twice in 9, 8, and then at the end of the chapter. That thanks be to God. That's a, an, an often translation of that term. But the idea here is simply that that everything that he is commending is a fruit of the grace of God. And and I would just make a little side note here, and I think this is worth at least mentioning and observing, is how magnificent and what an example this is of how we are to give encouragement to one another of how we are to give encouragement to one another. And I mean it in this way. It's, it's Paul is rejoicing and highlighting the action of the Macedonians, but he's doing it in such a way that the Macedonians don't take center stage. God does. And so he's magnifying the grace of God as he's encouraging and boasting about the Macedonians. And that's... A, Worthy of observation, I think, because we have a culture that's so self-congratulatory that the grace of God and the person of God tends to fade in the background so often in our encouragement to one another. But that never happens with Scripture. It doesn't happen with Paul here. So he acknowledges the Macedonian. He acknowledges their sacrifice. But he does so in such a way that he acknowledges as the primary reason the grace of God. The grace of God. And there's another part about this that's maybe a bit more subtle uh, but it's important to bring out. The Macedonians are Gentile churches. The collection is for the believers who are Jews within Jerusalem. The very fact that he is writing to the church at Corinth, which is in Achaia, and that he's writing about the, church of, the churches of the Macedonians, there were several churches in that area, that they are giving this to support the need of the Jews is in and of itself a beautiful picture of the unity of God's people, the unity under Christ in this new covenant theology of the body of Christ. We, of course, won't turn there. 
But in Ephesians chapter 2 and in other places, the, the glory and the magnificence of this one body of Christ is that the hostility between these two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, has been broken down. And now they share this common salvation, this common hope, this common redemption, this common love, this common possession of the Spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. They share together. And here is a beautiful expression of that love that generous love that exists among God's people. It is a beautiful picture of the new covenant reality of that we are the single body of Christ. And we can see that as well, not merely that it is in the Jews and the Gentiles together, but that it is by the people of God separated by, well, a fairly great distance. A long distance. And yet they realize, though I have not seen these brethren, though I do not know them, though these are the people who I was once in hostility with, now I share with them a love and a common love and a common salvation and a common hope so that sacrificially I would delight in the ability to give to them because of the grace of God. Because of the grace of God. And so it's a marvelous testimony. It's a witness. Can you imagine even to the Roman world who outside of this would have only known them as two groups in hostility with each other. Now as the watching Roman or Greco-Roman world is looking at them, they're seeing these two groups now sacrificially love one another. Sacrificially care for one another. And to do so with such sincerity, it is a witness. And just as a footnote there, it is a picture of even what Jesus Christ himself prayed to the Father in John 17. He says, they will know you by your love. They will, they will know you through the oneness and the love that you share together as believers. It will be a witness to the reality of Christ. When we as Christians support one another, when we as Christians demonstrate sincere care for other believers, both individually and as a body, that is a witness to the world. It is a witness to others. See how they love one another. See how they care for one another. And so even in this instruction that he is making known to you the grace of God, he is keeping the grace of God in the new covenant, in Christ, at the very center, as the very source of all of the good Uh, that he is going to encourage them to do. It's a picture of the witness of the grace of God and the mere fact that you have these two believers formerly at hostility, now united in care and love for one another, and that demonstrates support of one another's needs. And the second part I just noticed then about this grace of God is this. This grace of God, the reality of the grace that they had received, is evidenced by its fruit. This is an obvious but one that needs to be mentioned. Because uh, it relates to how we give and the motivation for why we give. Grace produces fruit, which at its heart is a love for the brethren. It is a love for the brethren. And a love for the brethren is, at its base, a desire to be with the brethren. It is a desire to care for the brethren. In James, he says the very evidence of faith is that you don't just say be warmed and be filled, but you actually care for the physical needs of your brethren. In 1 John chapter 3, a very evidence of being born again, of sharing the life of Christ, is that if a brother has needs, you meet it. These are real needs. These are needs uh, not merely once, but when there is a real need, when there is a real sacrifice that's called for by the people of God, Christian love meets that need. And, and the church has done that uh, very often and, and failed to do that at times. But, but that is a way that the church is a witness to the world. It's a witness to the world. So it is for the grace of God. So the grace of God is what motivates, it's what, uh, it's what is demonstrated in the way that we care for one another as Christians. 
Uh, Note a second principle then, and that is that it's marked by grateful joy. When we give, New Testament giving or New Covenant giving is to be marked by grateful joy. And so the evidence of grace is not merely the desire to give, nor is it really just the gift itself. But here is the real mark of the grace of God and the mark of New Covenant giving is that it's with joy. It's not begrudging. It's not merely by duty. It is with joy. It is a reflection uh, negatively of what he said to the Corinthians in chapter 13. uh, 1 Corinthians is that if you give your body to be burned, if you give all of your possessions, but you don't have love, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. You've accomplished nothing. You've displayed nothing. You have in no way reflected the grace of God. But when we give and we give and it's attended with a sincere attitude of joy, it reflects God's grace. Verse two, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Look at verse four. They were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. It was marked with sincerity. It was marked with joy. And it was not only marked with sincerity and joy, but look what he says in verse 2. It was in a great ordeal of affliction. This was a people who were suffering for their faith in Christ. And yet it was that same faith that enabled them to endure with endurance and steadfastness the suffering for the name of Christ. It was that same faith that in that suffering caused them to be self-forgetful in the abundance of their generosity to care for other Christians. Self-forgetful of the cost to themselves, and such was their experience of the grace of God. As a matter of fact, and I just do want to at least mention this, the, the church at Thessalonica was one of those churches of Macedonia. And he says this, just listen to what he says to them in 1 Thessalonians. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And this church particular became example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Achaia, again, is where the church of Corinth was. They became an example because the testimony of their having turned from vain idols, as he says in First Thessalonians a little later, turned from vain idols to serve the living and the true God was manifest in this overwhelming, not only endurance and suffering, but their joy in the Holy Spirit and this joy in the Holy Spirit, their thankfulness for the grace of God was marked out in their giving with an attitude of happiness, essentially. Thankful that they had the opportunity. Thankful that they could participate in such a ministry. And not merely with a a miserly attitude, he says, but it's the wealth of their liberality. The wealth of their liberality. The end of verse 2 there. It overflowed. And that wealth of their liberality came out of their deep poverty. This was not a wealthy church. These were not people who were overflowing and gave a little bit out of the excess of what they have. They were those who had needs themselves, but they were so lost in the reality of grace that they gave without thought of their own need. They gave out of their affliction and deep poverty to meet the needs of others, and that with joy. That is an expression of grace. The expression of grace and and a real full sense of what we have received in Christ produces that. We become self-forgetful. That's that's the essence of humility, is to be self-forgetful. You don't even think about yourself. You're so lost in what your affections for Christ and your concern for others, this is the ideal, we're all working towards this, uh, is that you don't think of yourselves. You You don't even think of your own needs and you 
gladly will uh, set those aside in order to meet the needs of others. It's, it's, a, it's a part, in a way, of, of, not, of considering others as more important than yourselves. And here it is with this humility, with this mindset of Christ, with this mindset of those who have been overwhelmed with grace, new, they demonstrate that the giving that marks those who have tasted the new covenant grace in Christ is one with joy. It's marked with joy. And note thirdly then, as it's already been hinted at, is it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. It is a fruit of the grace of God. It is marked with joy. And it is sacrificial. Our giving is to be sacrificial. It is to cost us something, in short. He says again in verse 3, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. According to their ability and beyond their own ability. Again, they gave out of their poverty. They gave to the cause. Not out of their abundance, but out of their lack. And the key idea is simply here that their, their giving was disproportionate to their wealth. That's the idea. Their giving was disproportionate to their wealth. In other words, the measure of their gift was not a reflection of all that they had. It was actually a reflection of their sacrifice because of what they didn't have. And because of what they gave up. It was a sacrifice for them. It was like the widow's mite, which we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. She gave all that she had to live on. She gave all that she had and she put it into the treasury. Those trumpet-shaped little boxes where they went in and you could hear the sound of the cord and the coin go in. And Jesus is looking at her and he says, she gave more than all of them. The, well, the rich came by and they put in their coins and you could hear all the coins go in. And, and it was a, for them a testimony of their own righteousness for their own glory. And he says, ah, but look at this widow. Everybody else would have forgotten her, but she is the one person that Jesus zeroed in on out of all of the people that were in probably the court of the women there. All of the people who were there, he said, she gave the most. It was the most sacrificial. And here it is with these Macedonians, and so it is to be with us, that we are to give with the attitude of a self-forgetfulness of what it's costing us uh, that we could meet the needs of others and have joy in that. Now, he's going to temper this later, and obviously we're going to have to come back to this. But he says in verse 12, he says, uh, let me give you a foretaste here. Uh, if this readiness is present, and he's referring to the Corinthians, he says it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. In other words, it is, God isn't saying that we're to go into debt to give. I'll mention this again in a bit later. But he is here holding up merely this point that the, the experience of grace within those who are truly in the heights of tasting the mercies of God in Christ is attended with such a sacrificial self-forgetfulness and the desire to meet the, others, the needs of others and with such joy that it is marked by liberality. Now the fact is that they didn't have much. So to say that it's marked with liberality here is not to say that the gift itself was great. It's merely to say that in comparison to what they have, the gift was great because it was such a uh, sacrifice for them. So the greatness of our gift, sometimes we like, ah, just a little bit that I give or I can't do much or I don't have much. It doesn't really mean much. And it may not be to those who are watching from the outside who are thinking only in terms of dollar signs, but it does to God when it's given in faith with a true expression of joy. 
The dollar of one person can be worth more in the sight of God and a greater treasure to him than the hundreds of thousands of dollars of someone else of who is merely given a smaller portion of their wealth. No, God looks at the heart. He looks at the, the attitude. He looks at the end that, at which this giving is centered. And here it was the love of others because of the grace that they experienced. And here's the fundamental thing. When we give, it should cost us something. It should cost us something. There's a basic glad willingness in, in, the, in our giving. There should be a basic glad willingness to give something up of our own pleasure or our own convenience to meet the real needs of others when the situation arises. There should be a willingness to give up some pleasure. There should be a willingness to give up some convenience. There should be a willingness to make some kind of sacrifice to ourselves with joy if it meets the needs of others as the situation arises as the need arises. That is a mark of the gospel. That is a mark of understanding the grace of God. And it's a giving then that reflects the character and likeness of God's grace to us. And it's, it's a free giving. Again, it's not something coerced. Look at what he says at the end of verse three. They gave beyond their ability of their own accord. It's a voluntary giving. It was an overflow, a movement of their own will because of their own joy and because of their own taste of the goodness of God. It was voluntary. It wasn't forced. It wasn't coerced. And this stands in opposition, unfortunately, to what some of you have experienced and Christians have experienced, whether it be coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. Some of you, where the giving was, in fact, required. It was, in fact, coerced to some measure. You can think, even I just watched a documentary that I like on uh, Luther, the, the indulgences, is, which are still in play in the Catholic Church, by the way, but the indulgences that were a measure you give and, it's a, and, and, and then somebody else is freed out of purgatory. Their soul is set free. They're, they're freed from some of the punishment their sins deserved by your monetary gift. That's a coercion. It's manipulation. That's not giving out of a, a freeness of the experience of grace. Some, I've heard, and some of you have experienced this, churches that actually will require a certain amount of giving for those who come in for membership, who require a certain uh, amount of a person's wealth. I've even heard of churches that where you have to know or where they uh, have to see the person's uh, income for the year, and then they have to give a certain portion of that income. It's incredible, but that's not what is reflective of the gospel and what Paul is commending here. He says they gave liberally. They gave out of an overflow of the wealth of their liberality. Again, is not the size of the gift, but is the heart at which it was given. Number fourth, here's a fourth principle. New Testament giving is grounded in faith in Christ. And again, that's implicit throughout, but it's... It's a bit more explicit here in verse five and will be as we go throughout the passage, but he says this. And this they did... Well, look at verse 4. Begging with us with much urging for the favor of participation or fellowship in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And that really is the key. That really is at the heart of it, of what's behind it. They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. In other words, to borrow the language of Paul... This giving was reflective of those who had already determined in their own lives that everything they possessed was under the lordship of Christ. It was gladly given to him. It was kind of like Zacchaeus in a sense. 
They are those who had already by faith embraced Christ and realized that they don't embrace Christ when they heard the gospel and they responded, when they turned from idols to serve the living and the true God, that it was not merely with a portion of their life, it was not merely with the convenient part of their life, it was with everything. As you will remember the words of Jesus that he said to his apostles, he says, anyone who wishes to save right, his life in this world will lose it ultimately, but the one who loses his life in this world, suke, there's the idea of every experience, every, every dynamic, every, every part of his life in which he interacts with this world, when you lose that, that you might gain the life of Christ, then you gain his life indeed and forever. And so here they are. First, gave themselves to the Lord. It was not merely that they came with their finances, but they gave their whole lives, of which their material possessions were but a part. They were but a part. And they did all of this by the will of God, that is to say, by the working of God in them, by the working and the grace of God in them and among them. And again, they did it with overwhelming intentionality, begging Begging with them, begging with them. You can imagine the idea here is possibly, and this is just inferred, that, that the apostles were, were, were acknowledging to them that this is a hardship they didn't need to make, but, but they were begging them. They were begging them. They were entreating them uh, repeatedly that they might give. And what an example, again, that would be to us. The sacrifice and generosity of their giving was a reflection of their glad. Submission to the Lordship of Christ, such that their possession, their lives were not their own, but they were Christ and to be used for his purposes. And that's the whole mindset that we have, isn't it? And that's really, we all wrestle with this, right? So, so this is an example of a, a really good example, and we're working to this. But, but here's the mindset. What we have is not our own. Not only what you possess, that's just one part of it. What you possess is a stewardship. It's something that you have from the Lord to be used, yes, for things that you can enjoy. Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy and 6. You know, enjoy the good things that God has in this world, but don't put your hope in it and be generous. Be generous is the idea. That's the reflection of the gospel. But it, but it is a mindset that we, we must have as Christians and we must seek from the Lord is that our lives are not our own, that our lives belong to Christ. And to say our lives belong to Christ is to say not merely the things we do with our time, but our minds belong to Christ, our affections belong to Christ, our relationships belong to Christ, our possessions belong to Christ. And that's a good thing and, and really a, a wonderfully powerful way, Paul says this to the Romans. When he says our lives are a living sacrifice, what did you do with the sacrifice when you brought it to the temple? You gave it over, the whole thing, right? It was, it was you took that animal and it was killed and then it was offered up. It was a total thing. And Paul says, and so is your life. You have died to yourself and now you are alive in Christ and your whole life is a living sacrifice. Every part of your life is to be an expression of the active work of God in you by his Holy Spirit such that you live your life to the glory of God and to his worship. That's the idea. And that's what we should strive for. And one part of that then is reflected in how our lives, our possessions, and everything that God has entrusted us is gladly, willingly, voluntarily, and joyfully given to his service. That's New Testament giving. Uh, that's the example here. 
It's the perspective of faith. It's the perspective of faith. As I, I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, it's really a challenging statement, but in, uh, I can't remember exactly where it came from, but the statement was this, that, that the, our giving is measured not so much by what we give, or our attitude is measured not by so much what we give, but what we keep, by what we keep. And so that is a, an example for us. It is a challenge to us uh, as well, that our whole lives belong to him and this is to be expressed in our giving. Well, that is the example that's held up before us. It is the, what is new basic principles of our giving is one, that it is a reflection of the grace of God. And in fact, our experience of the grace of God is manifested in our love for the brethren and our willingness to sacrifice for them. That whatever we give is not done begrudgingly, it's not duty, it's not law, it's not legality. It is joyfully done as an overflow of an experience of tasting the goodness and the kindness of God. That it is to be done sacrificially, that there is some measure in which our giving in reflection of the gospel and the grace we've received is to be, uh, cost us something, cost us something that sometimes there must be a willingness for us to give up something for the good of others. And all of that is grounded then in a faith in Christ, a life that has been given to Christ in its totality, in its completeness, in its wholeness, not in part, not measured, not measured out to say, I, I'm willing to go this far, but not that far. I'm willing to do this, but not something else. No, all of our lives belong to the Lord, and, and we need to be growing in our understanding of that and realizing that whatever we have is not ultimately our own. It has been entrusted in, to us and to be used for his glory. Well, we will finish the next part um, next time. But let me jump ahead to us as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. That might have been the shortest sermon in 13 years, by the way. I just want you to know that. <laughs> But I have the option to leave it there and come back or to go over in communion. And I don't want to rush communion. And so let us just remember this. Let's jump ahead to verse 9. We'll look at this. For he says in chapter 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now we'll get there next time. He, he's putting in the language of poverty and richness as an analogy of the grace of God and then how that is to be reflected in our generosity uh, towards others. But here it is. This is what we celebrate in the table, isn't it? This is what we celebrate in the, in the elements. We celebrate the forgiveness of the new covenant. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ and the anticipation of his return. We celebrate justification, that we are counted righteous in Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. We celebrate the perfection of sanctification, that it was begun, it's continuing, and we'll know its completion in the age to come. We celebrate many of the blessings of being his body and dwelled by the Spirit, of the union and the love that we have for one another. But we celebrate all of these things grounded in this one reality that Christ, as the eternal Son of God, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto, a thing to be selfishly possessed. But he humbled himself and he took on the form of a slave. He took on the appearance of a man and being found in the form of a slave, he humbled himself to the point of obedience even Obedience unto death, even death on a cross.
though he was rich, though he was rich in glory, possessing all things, though he enjoyed all of the privileges and the prerogatives as the divine son, as God the son, he laid those privileges aside for a period to take on flesh, to humble himself, to go to the cross to atone for our sin that we could then celebrate and participate in his wealth, in his riches, in his glory. And so this is what we celebrate in the table. So as we come to the table, prepare your hearts and let's freshly remember the grace that we have received in Christ. Let's freshly commit ourselves, even as this Macedonian church did, not merely in giving but in all of our lives, to first give ourselves to the Lord, to first give ourselves to him. Whatever areas of sin you are struggling with, confess those and know that the grace of God is abundant to not only forgive, but to help you have victory in that area, to help you put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. For any who are outside of Christ and estranged to the, 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 the commendations here, then it is your time to repent and to trust in Christ. And for those of us who just may be weary and those among us who just may be tired or undergoing trials, it is a reminder that his grace is sufficient and he will keep you and hold you even as we sung about. And he will shape you into the character of Christ because of his grace. So come, spend some time with the Lord as the men come forward, then we'll pass out the elements and remember the table together. Our Father, as we hand out these elements and as we spend time in prayer, we do pray that you would, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts the worship due your name. Work in us that persevering grace to carry on in light of whatever difficulties each one may be facing, that we would do so in your grace and to your glory.